Charles is on standby to do some tag team preaching if necessary. So, <coughs> so I hope you don't mind. I'm going to actually have uh, my throat lozenges here on the pulpit. So if you see me reach down, you'll know. So let's pray together. Father in heaven, I am praying your help uh, this morning uh, that you would give me uh, a voice to preach, but it's not ultimately about my voice, it's about your voice and you speaking through your word. And I pray, Lord, that you would bless now and uh, be powerful, uh, be very much richly with us uh, by your presence here this morning and help us to um, deepen into what Jesus requires for his disciples and the blessing that is part of being a disciple. We pray, Lord, your help uh, in this hour. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, so far in our exploration of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, we've concentrated on the Beatitudes, on this series of statements that kicks off the sermon, which essentially describe the character of Christian disciples. True Christian disciples are poor in spirit, they mourn over sin, they are meek, they are merciful, etc. The Beatitudes concentrate largely on the character of the Christian disciple. Well, in the little section that follows the Beatitudes now, verses 13 through 16, which is our preaching text this morning that Josh read for us, Jesus moves from describing the character of disciples now to talking about the responsibility of disciples, or we might say the impact of disciples, the influence that his disciples have in the world and on the world. Verses 13 through 16 have to do with how disciples of Jesus Christ relate to the world around them, how they leave their mark on the world around them. Now, we need to stress a couple of things right off the start here. First of all, Jesus in our passage is talking to his disciples. It's his disciples. It's the ones who actively follow him, who he calls salt and light in this passage. So if you're a person listening to Jesus today in this next section of the Sermon on the Mount, but you're not a disciple, uh, not an active follower of Jesus Christ, please know that salt and light don't apply to you. His words here are, dis- are addressed specifically to his disciples. Are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? Are you following him? If yes, then listen especially close. I want to invite you to listen especially close to his description of your influence in this passage. But if you're not a disciple, I pray that even by the end of this sermon, that God would change your mind and change your heart and that you will enter into discipleship. Well, the second thing to say here, as we just stressed moments ago, is that these verses have to do with how disciples interact with 
how they affect the world around them, which means automatically that Jesus assumes that being his follower is going to mean living this thing out in public, in the world, engaged with the world. That is to say that according to Jesus, you can't live the Christian life strictly in private. Even though many in our day would want to see Christians sort of barricaded off in their own private sphere, no longer having any opportunities to affect the world or to affect the establishment in the world, the Lord Jesus categorically rejects that sort of notion. Jesus assumes in this passage that as his disciples we will be in the world affecting the world as his distinctive, unique, and different people. Even though we may be persecuted for our influence in the world, verses 10 through 12, which we just came from, Jesus calls us here to serve the world that would persecute us, to be salt and light in the world. You know, I think we really get a profound picture in this passage of Jesus' understanding of his church. In Jesus' estimation, his church exists for the sake of the world. His church is salt and light in the world, engaging with the world, influencing the world for the kingdom. And yet, and yet, the church alone is salt and light. The church alone is salt and light, which means that the church is necessarily distinct from and different from the world. And it should always remain that way. As one writer has summed it up and put it, the church is against the world for the world. The church is against the world for the world. Salt and light in the world, but yet still salt and light, which means we are distinct as disciples from the world. Let's take a good look at our text. Jesus starts verse 13 with an emphatic you. You are the salt of the earth. You disciples are the salt of the earth, and no one else is. Now, of course, a whole lot of ink has been spilt and a whole lot of trees have fallen to make paper in order for people to write their various arguments about what Jesus meant here by salt. Some have concluded that by salt, Jesus meant to say that his disciples sort of flavor the society in which they are planted. They season the society in which they live. They bring a Christ-like, distinctive flavor into the world. The world is sort of tasteless without the presence of Christian disciples. That's one understanding. Others, like Charles Quarles, have argued that by salt, Jesus meant that his disciples purify the world around them by being holy 
and by proclaiming the kingdom. Salt is to be read, according to Charles Quarles, in the sense of being a purifying agent. And then Jonathan Pennington has argued recently that salt here should be read in terms of the covenant. And Pennington marshals several Old Testament passages in support of his argument. Well, I think there may be kernels of truth in all those arguments, but I still tend to hold to the more traditional understanding held by scholars and preachers like Leon Morris and Don Carson and Craig Blomberg and Martin Lloyd-Jones and others, which is this, that most likely the primary meaning, the primary meaning of salt, as Jesus intended it here in verse 13, is salt as a preservative. Salt as a preservative. Craig Blomberg says, of the numerous things to which salt could refer in antiquity, so in the ancient world, its use as a preservative in food was probably its most basic function. And Don Carson agrees. He says this, in the ancient world, salt was used primarily as a preservative, since they did not own deep freeze refrigerators, the people used salt to preserve many foodstuffs. Now, as many of you already know, my big hobby is slow smoking. Isn't this great? Any chance I get to talk about it from the pulpit? My, my big hobby is slow smoking various cuts of meat. One of the things that I love to do is go to my favorite butcher over in uh, St. Leonard, and buy a pork belly. And then when I get it home, I rub it down with a maple sugar and salt rub, a mixture of maple salt, uh, sugar and salt and a few other things. And I leave it to cure in our refrigerator for eight days. After which I pull it out, I rinse it off, and I smoke it for a few hours, and voila, you get the best bacon that you have ever eaten. <laughs> Honestly, my oldest son Silas recently said, I can't do store-bought bacon anymore after tasting dad's bacon. So that was a nice compliment. Now, the sugar and salt rub that goes on the pork belly has over a half a cup of regular salt in it, plus a small quantity of pink curing salt. Now, that's a lot of salt, but what the salt does over the eight-day curing time is it kills any bacteria that exist in the meat while also drawing a whole lot of moisture out of the meat. After the salt's done its job and after the meat is smoked, that piece of meat will last in our fridge for up to a month. Now, the point here, what's the point, Dunbar? Uh, other than giving you a recipe... And, uh, and getting all excited all over again about my hobby. Uh, the point is that salt acts on meat to preserve the meat from putrefying. The salt draws moisture out of the meat and it prevents bacteria from thriving in the meat. Salt dramatically slows down the rotting process. When Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew 5.13, you are the salt of the earth, I think in large part he's talking about the presence of disciples in the world preventing 
or slowing decay in the world. I think that the implication that lurks just behind Jesus' statement is that the world in which we live tends toward putrefaction. The world tends toward rottenness or foulness in a moral and in a spiritual sense. And his disciples, the salt of the earth, are put in this world by God to prevent that tendency or to slow that tendency. Now, the Bible shows us this pattern, does it not, of the world tending toward rottenness. And it shows us the pattern in several places in several different ways. For example, if you read through Genesis 3 through Genesis 8 or so, what you'll see in those chapters is a downward spiral of evil in the people of the earth. From the fall into sin in the garden in Genesis chapter 3 until the point in Genesis 6 through 8 when God sends the flood in judgment that wipes out most of humanity. And then the pattern repeats in Genesis 10 through 12, culminating in the Tower of Babel episode. We also see this tendency toward decay in humanity, decay in society in the book of Judges, which is one of the darker books of the Bible. And then in Romans chapter 1 in the New Testament, we have the Apostle Paul's dark picture of what happens to humanity when we suppress the truth. What happens is that society decays. Society frays out. Society declines and society rots. Friends, the fallen post-Genesis 3 world has this tendency toward rot. Like a pork belly with no salt cure rubbed onto it. After eight days in my fridge with no salt cure, that thing would probably start smelling a little putrid. You are the salt of the earth. Jesus intends his disciples to be distinct from the world as salt and to remain distinct in their ways and in their words and in their behaviors. There's the world, the world which tends toward decay, and then there's the salt, the disciples in the world, but yet distinct from the world. But the salt is meant to pervade the world, to rub into the world, to engage the world. Disciples were never intended to live strictly private lives in protected little enclaves. Disciples are meant to occupy themselves in the world, influencing the world for King Jesus and his kingdom, living into their unique callings and exercising the talents that God has given, all to act as a preservative agent in the world, an antiseptic agent, a seasoning agent to delay or to stave off the process of putrefying or decaying morally and spiritually, that is the tendency of this fallen world. 
Let's move forward in our text. Jesus says, you are the salt. The salt. There is no other salt but Jesus' disciples. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. In the ancient world in which Jesus was preaching his sermon, they didn't have a super sea where they could go run out and simply buy a box of Windsor salt. So in other words, pure salt was something of a rarity in this ancient culture. For Jesus and his contemporaries, salt was most often found in an impure form. It was mixed with other substances like sand and or dirt. A mixture that had a high amount of salt in it was a useful mixture, but sometimes a good mixture wasn't always readily available. If your mixture was more sand than salt, or if your mixture became exposed to dampness, then the salt content could leach out of it and it would become useless to you. When Jesus talks in verse 13 about salt losing its taste, he's probably referring to that sort of situation. This impure mixture of salt and sand that was common in his time. If most of the salt leached out of your mixture, or if the mixture had too low a salt count, then it was quite literally Useless. You couldn't even throw this stuff on a compost heap because the salt remnants in it would be harmful to the soil. The only thing you could do with it was to chuck it down on a path and have people trample on it as they walked. But friends, Jesus is talking about disciples here, isn't he? He's talking about disciples. If disciples, the salt of the earth, if they lose their saltiness, if disciples lose their disciple-ishness, then they become useless. No longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. If, out of fear, or out of laziness or otherwise, disciples assimilate themselves or cozy themselves up to the world too much, losing their distinctiveness as salt. If disciples allow the impurities in the rotting, fallen world to overtake them and influence them unduly and to determine them, then their influence as salt is diminished so drastically that they become ineffective. They become useless. Now there's a warning here from Jesus, is there not? Salt has to be salty. Disciples have to be distinct in the world as disciples. If they don't, they're useless to Jesus 
and they risk being thrown out, to use his term. Now, this is a sobering word from Jesus, is it not? It beckons us to think carefully about how we are being an influence in the world as salt, and it also warns us against diminishing our influence by assimilating too much into the world, losing our distinctiveness as his disciples by being too cozy with the world. There needs to be a uniqueness about us that is carefully maintained. A something about us that we strive to preserve that marks us out as belonging to Jesus Christ. Well, after all that talk of salt, let's go to verse 14. I'm going to have a glass of water after all that. Now, this is quite amazing here. Verse 14. Hundreds of years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Isaiah the prophet had prophesied about the servant of the Lord who, according to Isaiah 42.6 and 49.6, would come, the servant would, and he would be a light to the nations. Jesus came along, and in places like John 8.12 and John 9.5, he made it explicitly clear that he was the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. I'm the one who was promised by Isaiah the prophet to be a light to the nations. But now here in Matthew 5.14, Jesus says to his disciples, to you if you are a disciple, he says, you are the light of the world. Now I guess it's sort of like this. If Jesus is the sun, S-U-N, the sun who shines so bright that he is blinding, then his disciples are the moon. We have light as his disciples and we bring light into the world, but our light is but a reflection of the brightness of Jesus Christ. The only way that we can be called the light of the world as his disciples is by virtue of our union with him who is the light of the world. You, disciple of Jesus, are the light of the world. Now, what does Jesus mean here by light? What is the content of light? Well, as it was in verse 13, where Jesus implied that the world tended toward decay, which necessitates salt, here in verse 14, his implication is, that the world is in a state of darkness and needs light. Disciples are illumination sent by God into a dark world, just as disciples are salt in a world that is tending toward rot. When the light of the world came, the people walking in darkness saw a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness suddenly had light shining on them. Isaiah 9, verses 1 and 2. The light named Jesus, listen, the light named Jesus was and is God's hope, God's joy, God's deliverance, 
and God's salvation. It stands to reason that as disciples reflect the light of Jesus, as disciples act as light in the world, what they're doing is they are extending, extending the salvation, deliverance, and hope ministry of Jesus. Disciples illuminate people with the revelation of God's salvation and hope in Jesus. This is what it means to be the light of the world. So many people in the world today are convinced that more education or more inclusiveness or more government or less government or more international unity, these things will shine the needed light on humanity's problems. They claim that those things are the light we need. But Jesus turns to his little insignificant band of disciples on the mountain that day in the first century, and he says, You, you're the light of the world. Excuse me. You're the light of the world. Friends, what people need in order to overcome their darkness in order to overcome their love for darkness, is not more education, not more international peace at the political level. What they need is a new nature that only comes by Jesus Christ so that they come to hate darkness and love light. As his disciples, we are the light of the world. We are meant to carry the illumination of God, the revelation of God for salvation, the gospel to the world. And as Mike Lashley pointed out so wisely at the missions night the other night, you don't have to go overseas to shine this light. You have opportunity to shine right here in your neighborhood in Montreal. You are the light of the world in Hampstead in Cote St. Luke, on the South Shore, in Dorval or LaSalle or wherever you are. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. He's assuming a typical village house of the time, which was one room. You light a lamp and it gives light to the whole house because it's only one room. But Jesus gives two illustrations here. He gives this illustration of a city set on a hill and the other one is an illustration of a lit lamp. It would be pretty difficult. It would be impossible to hide a lit up city that was situated high up on a hill. Who would even attempt to do that? A lit city on a hill shines and people see it at night. And it would also be absurd if a person lit a lamp only to then promptly cover the lamp with a basket so that the light was concealed under the basket so that, or, or so that the light went out under the basket. The idea is, as disciples, we are. We are the light of the world. Jesus has made us 
light in a dark world. Our very existence as disciples is about diffusing his light, giving glory to God by our witness to him and by our holy living. Will we deliberately try to conceal the light that he has made us to be? Will we try to get away from or avoid our mission as light to the world? If so, it as, it's as ridiculous a situation as lighting a lamp and then putting a basket over top of it. That's what Jesus is getting at here. John Stott exhorts disciples of Jesus here by saying this. You are light. And so you must let your light shine and not conceal it in any way, whether by sin or by compromise, by laziness or by fear. See what Jesus is calling us to here. Now, friends, I hope that by this point in our exploration of this passage that we're seeing just how public in the world, how vigorous in this world Jesus wants us to be as salt of the earth and as light of the world. There's nothing private or privatized about our faith here, is there? Jesus is really challenging us here. We must engage with the world, first in the more negative way of being salt, creatively curbing the tendency toward decay in society, And in the more positive way of being light, that is, proactively spreading the gospel in a dark world. As Craig Blomberg says, we dare not, we dare not form isolated Christian enclaves to which the world pays no attention. In our final verse this morning, verse 16, Jesus says to us, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and what? And give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We can observe here how Jesus connects the shining light of the disciple with the good works of the disciple. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. We've already pointed out that the light that Jesus is talking about in this passage has much to do with illuminating gospel truth to people around us, speaking the gospel to people that cross our path. So certainly verbal presentations of the gospel are included in the good works that Jesus talks about here in verse 16. But in mentioning good works here, of course, Jesus is also including actions, isn't he? Actions of love and kindness performed by the disciple. Works or deeds of mercy and hospitality and generosity. Whether it's visiting someone in the hospital who's ill or helping a coworker out who's in dire straits, or welcoming a foreigner into your home, or weeping with those who weep, or caring for the suffering in a hospice, or educating orphans, working at a local food bank. The list is endless, isn't it? We could go on here. 
The point here, friends, is that the good works of light in verse 16 include both deeds of love and service and words of gospel. Good works here include both actions of mercy and words that connect the actions of mercy with Jesus and his gospel. Both must be in play for the disciple of Jesus Christ. (coughs) Now, some of you may be familiar with the saying, preach the gospel at all times when necessary, use words. That's a very unhelpful saying. For the simple reason that it puts way too much emphasis on us and on what we do and not nearly enough emphasis on the person of Jesus. The assumption behind that saying is that you and I might be able to somehow exude or transmit a saving gospel to people by our works, while being very sparing with our words. We can't. As Mike Horton has pointed out, on our best days, we are far from being the Savior that people need. The Savior that people need needs to be proclaimed out loud. He is a very specific person named Jesus who is like us, but also entirely different from us. He lived in a specific time overseas in a specific place. He died a very specific kind of death on a cross under Herod and Pontius Pilate to save sinners. Jesus and his story must be proclaimed verbally if people are to be saved from the wrath to come. We simply cannot rely solely on our wordless works of love to preach that message. The gospel is a message that God has designed to be verbally verbally declared and verbally proclaimed. Works of love and mercy? Of course, absolutely. In fact, they are commanded, aren't they, all over the place. Ephesians 2.10 says that we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. But those actions, friends, those deeds, have to be twinned with proclamations and declarations of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to say it again. In Matthew 5.16, in the context, when Jesus speaks of good works, he's speaking of both deeds and words. Now, watch the results in verse 16 of our faithfulness in speaking the gospel and carrying out works of love and service. The world around us, the people around us who are the audience of of these words and deeds are going to do what? They're going to give glory to your Father who is in heaven, says Jesus. Notice where the fame goes, friends. You see it? 
The disciple doesn't get the glory for his or her good works. God does. And the disciple, if he or she is a true disciple, wants it that way. The disciple is a person whose motivation and intention in doing good works is that God would get the glory. That God would be the focus. That God's fame would shine forth. Isn't this precisely the way Jesus himself operated? I want you with me just for a minute to watch the results in the gospel accounts when Jesus does good works. The results are that God gets the glory. In Matthew 9, Jesus heals a paralyzed man and forgives his sins. And, Matthew 9, 8, the crowd saw it and were afraid and they glorified God. God gets the glory for the good works that Jesus performed. Or Matthew 15, 31. When the people saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing all courtesy of Jesus, they did what? They glorified the God of Israel. Or Luke 13, 13. When Jesus touched a woman who had an 18-year spinal malady and she straightened up, She then glorified God. So the light of the world, so let his light shine with good works that those he came in contact with glorified his Father in heaven. Disciples, light of the world, the challenge to us in verse 16 is to be like Jesus in this regard. As John Piper puts it, The challenge is, and I love this, to live out our lives in such a way that people look at our lives and make much of our God. One more time. To live out our lives in such a way that people look at our lives and make much of our God. We don't want people to see us and how supposedly great we are. We don't want people to concentrate on the bearer of the light. We want others to see the light that's shining out from us that has been authored by God so that they will come to glorify the light source, the author of the light. Friends, disciples are channels. That's what we are. We are channels of good works. God is the author of the good works, and the disciples' interest is that people would behold the author and come to treasure the author. May he always be glorified in us. Psalm 115.1 is apropos here. Not to us, not to us, but to your name give glory. I heard a preacher say one time that the best way to surprise someone with a Christmas hamper would be to drop it off secretly at their back door with a note that says, from God, and then walk away before the person sees you there. That would be a good example of how to make sure that God gets the glory for the light that is shining in our good works. Well, having traveled through our preaching passage, 
Having seen disciples of Jesus, how our lives must shine out to the world and rub into the world like salt, I wonder how God is personally applying this passage in your life. Don't look around at anybody else. Think about you and your situation. Maybe you've been challenged this morning by Jesus' insistence that the Christian life be worked out in public and not solely in private. Or maybe God was pleased this morning to challenge you toward being salt and light in a specific work situation that you're facing or in a a unique circumstance that's happening in your home. Or maybe he's beckoning you now to a new level of impact for him in a dark place or in a putrefying place that you're involved with somehow. Maybe God arrested your attention this morning by his warnings about salt losing its saltiness and light being snuffed out under a basket and you need to simply go away and repent. Or maybe Jesus is calling you into relationship with him for the very first time. Whatever the case, may God be glorified. May each of us continue to allow his word to interpret us. May Jesus Christ get under our skin for his glory and for our benefit and for the sake of his mission to the world. And may we humble ourselves under the great and mighty hand of our loving Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, again, we bless you and praise you for this constitution of the kingdom, this Sermon on the Mount that Jesus declared that still rings with life and activity in our hearts and in our minds. Father, may you so impress this on us this week that it would change change us, that it would transform us on Monday or Wednesday or Thursday in a specific situation, that we would remember, be salt, be light. We are salt, we are light, and that we would apply it, that you would be pleased to do that in our lives. We pray these things in the mighty and powerful name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.